In case you're wondering just what this is you're about to listen to, this is the Scots We Hate podcast, and this is actually one of our annual Burns casts, um, which we try to do for Burns Night each year. Now, you might think there's nothing left to be said about the bard, the man, the myth, the poetry itself, but we try to bring you something new, hopefully, and, and discuss that, and this year is no different as I spoke to the author Catherine Cherkavska about her novel The Jewel and the accompanying collection of poetry that goes with it um, for Jean, which sort of gives away the subject of the novel. It examines Burns' relationship with his wife, Jean Armour, um, from Jean's point of view. And Catherine has done... Oh, well, you'll find out how much research and how much work has gone into it. But what you'll definitely be left with is a fascinating insight into someone who undoubtedly was overshadowed by her husband and the mythology that went around it. But also you'll learn just what that meant realistically to Burns, to Jean, to their family and to their life, and for her, after his death. Um, it's not something that I particularly had thought about too much, and it's one of the most uh, interesting um, hours I've had in a long time, just listening to Catherine discuss it. Before you hear from Catherine herself, um, the novel um, starts with one of those poems, um, The Bells of Mocklin. Um, which is mentioned uh, in our chat. So I thought um, before we begin, it would be the right thing to do to read it here. So this is The Bells of Mocklin by Robert Burns. In Mocklin there dwells six proper young bells, the pride of the place and its neighbourhood all. Their carriage and dress, a stranger would guess, in London or Paris they'd gotten it all. Miss Miller is fine, Miss Macklin's divine. Miss Smith, she has wit, and Miss Betty's braw. There's beauty and fortune to get with Miss Morton, but armour's the jewel for me of them all. And there'll be a little bit more poetry on the other side of this. Hello everyone, and welcome to another Scotch We Hate podcast. And today I'm talking to Catherine Churkavska. Hello, Catherine. Hello. <laughs> and we're here to talk about your novel, The Jewel, um, but also for Jean, which is a sister publication, I suppose you could put it that way. Tell us a little bit about The Jewel. Yes, um, The Jewel is something I've wanted to write for a long, long time. It's um, a novel about Jean Armour who was, of course, Robert Burns' wife. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always I've wanted to write about her for a very long time. Uh, I wrote a couple of plays about Robert Burns, but they turned out to be as much about Jean as well, they were about Robert. Um, and uh, for a long, long time, I'd had a kind of hankering to, to tackle it properly. OK. Really. So why Jean Armour? Why she appealed to you so much as a character? Um, I thought she'd been um, underrated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always felt when, when you start to read about Robert Burns and you read particularly the Victorian biography,
biographers, um, Victorian commentators, poor Jean was always neglected. Yeah. Um, and it was as if they found her a bit embarrassing. It was it was a really strange attitude, Jean. Oh, OK. Um, Do you think they didn't fit? Because, you know, we all know the, the image of, of Burns... Um, so many images and so many ideas of what Burns was like, but one of them was this, um, you know, womanizer and uh, yeah. some. Whereas having a, a wife didn't really maybe fit that. It didn't image. fit, and I think they felt that there was a sense that she wasn't good enough for him, oh. and nothing could have been further from the truth. That's interesting. Um, and the, I mean, one of the things that struck me um, there's a nineteen thirty novel about Robert Burns by Catherine Carr yes, as well, which yes. be aware of. Uh, and she calls Jean an, a heifer, an <laughs> oh, unfeeling God. heifer, she said, without the capacity for self-sacrifice of, of Highland Mary. And I thought, no, this can't be true. Um, and, of course, when you start to research it, you realise just, just how interesting... So uh, the literary society were willing to have a heaven-taught ploughman, but a heaven-taught ploughman's wife was just a, bit, a step a too far. Step too far. That was a, a bit too far. Um, and she was, you know, her father was, um, he was a stonemason, a master stonemason in Mochlin. Right. And essentially he was the equivalent of a building contractor mm -hmm. now. So um, she was a reasonably well-off family. Um, and she she certainly wasn't illiterate. She could read and write. She'd been to school. Um, she was she was a woman, a young woman of some consequence in yes. the town. Um, she was there. There were a bunch of girls. Burns called them the Mocklin Bells. Yes, absolutely. Um, Mocklin was actually quite a, a big and important town in those days. You know, if anything, it's become a little bit smaller uh, because it was at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. So it was a trading centre. Um, and so the town was a town of some consequence. And, and the lassies, uh, the Mocklin Bells were, I always think of them, they were almost like the cheerleaders mm -hmm. of the town. You know, they were attractive young women. Um, who thought quite well of themselves, dressed well. They were interested in fashions. Yeah, they they were. You know, I mean, she she was she was a, an ordinary Ayrshire lassie, mm -hmm. but they they were interested in dress and mm -hmm. and fashions and things like that. Because I, I think at the beginning of the novel there is the poem, the bells of Mocklin. Yes, right, and we're. Um, he, he Burns writes about the other women that were the possibilities, but Jean was the one for Jean him. Jean was the jewel of them all, yeah. which is where the title comes from, yes. And he did, I mean, he did sort of court some of the other, or try to court some <laughs> of the others, but he always seemed to fancy Jean more than anybody mm. else. So what stage was this in, in Burns' life, to put it into some kind of context? Um, they had just moved to Muskeel. Mm -hmm. So his father had died and then they, um, he and his brother Gilbert had rented Muskeel. They'd arranged that rental even before the father died um, because the previous farm had been a bit of a disaster for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they moved to Muskeel and he was... Um, he was quite self-consciously the poet by that time. Yeah. You know, um, he calls himself, you know, a rake. He, he saw himself as a bit of a, a he, bit of a... He was beginning to believe his own publicity. He year. certainly was. Um, but he saw Jean. Jean um, was pretty. She was a 
pretty young woman. She could dance, but I think the most important thing of all was she could sing. And she was acknowledged to be the best singer in the town. And she knew all the old ballads and songs and the melodies. And I think that's something else that's seldom acknowledged, is I think one of the big attractions for Burns was her her songs and her singing. So as a songwriter himself, yeah, he could maybe uh, I think appreciate so. that. Uh, you know, and, and later, much later on, when he's making notes to the songs that he's collecting and rewriting, he quite often mentions Jean, or he'll say that something was taken down from Mrs Burns's singing that, uh, you know, it was a melody that she she knew or, you know, that she, she had mentioned as being appropriate for this song. So I think there was a definite attraction mm-hmm. with the songs and the singing. Because it does seem to me that in, that uh, Jean Armour often is sidelined as just another one of Burns' yeah. litany of women yes. or something like that. And um, it's not true. And it's not true that she was yeah. uh, much more than this. Yeah. And was, uh... He was he was demented about her. Yeah. To some extent, um, he you know he her, her parents did not like him. Her right. parents disapproved um, very much so at first. So when she started, um, when they courted in secret, because her parents were so horrified at the thought of her seeing the poet. So it was the fact he was the poet rather than maybe the field farmer that was more of a... Yes, exactly. I think it was. And they thought he would not be a good provider. And that was a big thing. Mm. Um, And a lot of people, when you look at accounts of him from the time, uh, I think he's quite good looking. He's described as spare and swarthy. So he was quite good looking. Uh, But he always had his nose in a book and they didn't like that. Mm. He was not, not a good provider. Not going to be I wonder if that writer. still holds today if you, you know, your daughter came back and said, here's my new boyfriend, he's a poet. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Hang on. Um, so they, they didn't approve because they didn't think he was going to make any money. Mm. And she was clearly a much-loved eldest daughter. Mm-hmm. And I think she was very close to her father. I think her father did was very, very fond of her. Um, so they, they disapproved... Um, the couple they had to court in secret Um, and then of course Jean got pregnant Mm -hmm. and uh, when that happened her father did apparently faint when he heard the news (laughs) when he found out who who the the father father was was, (laughs) he fainted clean away and he had to be revived with his wife's cordial apparently (laughs) (laughs) Um, they did have somebody else in mind for her as well they had a a weaver called Rab Wilson, actually. Oh, okay. And they, did, they had kind of wanted Jean to He was the suitable... Uh, he was a suitable, suitable man. Um, it, it's interesting writing historical fiction. Obviously, you've got what we know as fact, for want of a better term, and now you've got yeah. your fictionalisation of it. And I noted that you had said um, at the end of the novel... Um, documented facts and invention that should be hard to distinguish or something along yes, those lines. Yes. So how do you approach that when you're writing something like this? Um, actually, with this, the, the, the documented fact was so dramatic and extraordinary that I didn't have to make up very much. Mm-hmm. It constantly surprised me yeah. um, that that things happened that I thought, my goodness, you know, I, you, you couldn't make it up. 
for instance, that Dean um, and Nancy McLehose, mm -hmm. Clorinda, they did meet and have tea after wow. Burns's death. She'd say, because I've written down Nancy McLehose. Now, Nancy McLehose yeah. was someone who Burns if, well, infamously wrote, had, you know, a mm. letters of correspondence with. She was Clorinda and he was Sylvander. That's right, yes. Um, well, let's go into a little bit about that relationship because yes. it's an interesting one. Um, yes, he, he, they met in, in Edinburgh um, and there was clearly an attraction. Whether it was ever consummated or not is another matter. We just don't know. She was married. Mm -hmm. uh, she was separated from her husband. Her husband was, was um, in the Indies. Um, and apparently not a very nice man by all accounts. Right. So she had been quite unhappily married. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Burns calls her a widow, but she wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and they had this very passionate correspondence. I think, it, it, you know, the modern day equivalent would be an online relationship. Yeah. Because sometimes the letters were two and three times a day. You know, they, they would be, letters would be going back and forth between them. Um, and I think it was, I think a lot of it was in in both their heads, really. Yeah. Um, she, was, she was pretty, she was clever, she wrote poetry, so you could see the attraction. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have to remember that this relationship was going on while everything was going disastrously wrong with Jean yeah. and Mochlin. Um, because Jean had, first of all, she'd been banished... She came back, she gave birth to twins. Um, she didn't, uh, the parents were beginning to change their minds because Burns was making some money now as a poet, was becoming quite celebrated. Um, but by that stage, he was saying he would never, never, never marry Jean now because he thought she'd betrayed him. So he had, he was, he'd, he'd gone off in the half. And so things were not the domestic front or the Mochlin front was, was, there was a great deal of upheaval at that time. So he was almost distracting himself. Yeah, there was a kind um, of boost to his ego probably yes. for this young... And he did write some of the most beautiful songs and poems to Nancy. Yeah. But he said himself he had to be in love to write a love a love poem or a love song. So there's an element, I think, of almost self-consciously right looking being for in love yes. yes and for and you know you could never have imagined nancy sort of in the dairy at ellis land making cheese that that was just never gonna happen yeah you know the sister publication as i say is for jean which is a collection of poems songs and letters by burns for jean armor um, and what it makes you realise is also the lovely poetry that he wrote for Jean. Yes, yes, he did. He did. Um, did this, um, it sounds as though it perhaps tailed off as things got more difficult and, and reality kind of kicked in. Yes, I mean, they were married. You know, they, they, the relationship lasted for um, 10 years, really, mm -hmm. till from the time when they first met till he died. Um, far too young, obviously, yes. um, and they were married for a, a fairly short time, and and it was a little bit turbulent because he he wasn't a particularly faithful husband. Mm. Jean was tolerant to a degree; she was remarkably tolerant, mm -hmm. but. Um, you get the sense that she, she wasn't always happy about it. No. Uh, and she did occasionally um, take the 
children and go back to Mochland on visits. I mean, she was never leaving him, but I think she needed a break. She needed space. And she did. She she would take the children ostensibly to go and see their grandparents, but she would head back to Mochland. He was... uh, The other thing that I think not a lot of people realise, he was actually a very good father. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't think we think of him as a father at all. No, I think there's quite a few things that... People people see him as the great poet, which he was, mm-hmm. but he was he was a very kind and caring father, apparently. Um, and the other thing that struck me was he didn't need um, quiet or silence. He he could work with the children playing about ah, okay. his feet, and he didn't mind mischief. He he clearly was a very tolerant father, and I think that was part. He was a very kind man. Comes across as being very kind. Has he um, written much poetry? Had he written much poetry about his children? No, not well, really. I, I didn't no, think so. No, I couldn't no, think of anything. He hadn't. But you know, Jean sort of. You get the impression from the letters. He writes letters about mm-hmm. his children. He yeah. definitely writes letters to various people um, about you know the children and and what they're doing. And what I they're wonder doing. just at that time people yeah. didn't write about their own children. It wasn't. You know, I don't think it was. It's, just, it's different today. Maybe how we view it. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the collection of poetry, songs, and letters. Um, are you've selected them. Yes. Uh, was that a difficult process coming up? With- um, not really. I mean, they they are limited. So some of them are very definitely for Jean. He he says, you know, yeah. um, poems like Oh, Where I On Parnassus Hill was very definitely written for Jean. And he says himself it was written during the honeymoon um, when he was, uh, they were building the farm at Ellisland. Jean was in Mochlin. Mm-hmm. They were married, fairly newly married. Um, or officially newly married because they had been married unofficially before that uh, and he was travelling back and forth between Ellisland and Mochlin and she would go out and meet him along the road uh, and they clearly were very much in love at mm. that point and it's a lovely poem yeah. um, so those poems that were written very much for Jean are it's very obvious what they are yeah. uh, there are others that were there were other genes in his life yeah. so some of them and one or two of them um, when you read them you realize that he changed the name right and there's a poem about meanie and it's clearly not meanie it's genie <laughs> <You know? laughs> so he wasn't above sort of changing the name when he'd when he um, thought it might suit him yes um and there's also one um which is just a sort of howl of outrage that when he thinks she's betrayed him she never did betray him with anybody else right. but um i think for a while she was torn between what her parents wanted and what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, she was a, an 18th century young woman yeah. who didn't go against... The parents. the parents. Yeah, well, that's what makes yes. it quite an interesting tale yeah. in the first place, the fact that not just that she fell for this poet, yeah. but that she sort of did go against the will of, uh, of parents mm. because at that, that time it just wasn't done. It wasn't done, no. Um, the parents mellowed over time, you know, you can see... Um, as he became yeah, successful, successful. That, yeah. uh, and that didn't go down well with Burns at first. He he, he thought that was not not very nice, and he was right. Mm. You know that suddenly they were fawning over him when before they'd not wanted him. Um, 
so there was that. There's some evidence that he he became really very friendly with her father. Right. But he never seemed to quite forgive her mother. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and we're not sure why. Yeah. Uh, and the um, daughter, the little girl of the first set of twins, died in an accident. And we don't know why. Right. And we don't know, what, okay. we don't know for sure what the accident was. Um, but uh, she was 13 months old. So it could have been anything. Yeah. He says, and the only mention of it is in a letter, he says, I am a girl out of pocket and by careless murdering mischance too. Oh, it suggests wow. an accident of some sort. Yeah. Um, and as I say, he never quite seemed to be on good terms with Jean's mother. So are these the kind of things that you might... Um, take and possibly fictionalise or possibly... Yes, I mean, the, 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 those are the sort of dramatic elements that you... I think in fiction what you do, you're taking, because it's so heavily based on fact and yeah. there's very little actually made up and the bits that are made up could have happened. Yes. I think you have to, they have to be things that actually could mm -hmm. have happened. But I think as a writer of fiction, you're asking yourself all the time what something felt like. Yeah. And it's written very much, the novel's very much from Jean's point of view. It's, it's uh, he said, it's a third person mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, we are with Jean all the time. Yeah. So we're perceiving everything as Jean would have seen it and felt it and experienced it. Um, and that is what makes it fiction, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. you're permitting yourself to imagine what something must have been like. So we really only have pictures of what Jean was like through what he's written about her, or was there other...? There are other accounts of her. Um, there are people who went back to Mochlin and spoke to people. Um, I, I did an awful lot of digging around. Sure. Um, I saw the uh, Kirk Session minutes mm -hmm. for the years when... Things are at the most turbulent. Um, there's a really interesting, um, in the Kirk Session Minutes book, uh, when Jean came back from, she'd been banished to Paisley, she came back very obviously pregnant, um, and uh, she should have really been on the cutty stool in the Kirk and confessing her sins, mm. but the minister wouldn't let her. Uh, Daddy all said no obviously said no because by this time she was yeah. pregnant and he said no so she wrote a letter a penitent letter and that was copied into the Kirk Session Minutes wow. book and actually that page is quite blotchy and I wondered if she was crying so Burns had he had to stand up in the Kirk but she didn't he, they didn't make her I had a lot of time for the minister I thought he was he was quite strict, but I yeah. think he was quite a kindly man. So, um, because this is a writer who people were very interested in when he was still alive, yes. which is not always the yeah. case, particularly back then. So, I guess there was interest not just in his work, but in his, his life. In his life, yeah. yes, there were. And people went back in the years immediately following mm -hmm. his death. Um, you know, there are there's interviews with... Somebody went and spoke to... 
um, the man who'd been who'd worked at Muskeel as a quite a young, very young lad. Um, the ploughboy really had helped out on the farm and went back and spoke to him as an old man and he had quite a lot to say about yeah. Jean um, oh. and the family because they had lived, his family had lived in the same street in Mocklin. So he had quite a bit to say. He remembered a lot about Jean. That's fascinating. So it isn't just, we're not just hearing about her from yeah. from Rab's point of view. Yeah, but yeah. We, we have quite, and um, she was very well thought of after uh, after he died. She stayed in, in Dumfries. Um, she she wouldn't move. They wanted her to move to air, but no, she wouldn't move. Um, and she she had a lot of offers of marriage, which she turned down. Interesting. Um, she was friends with... James Hogg, he came to ah, see. okay. Uh, and she kind of, she had a lot of visitors who came to see the house where the great poet had lived and died. But um, and I guess if people like Hogg are are coming, they're coming to see her. It's not yeah, just because she's not, the wife. No, of, Hogg was a, a friend. I mean, yeah. he did become a, the, the, you know, by all accounts, he became a friend of hers. Uh, and she went to Edinburgh. She because Gilbert by this time was living in the Lothians, so she would go and visit Gilbert, and she would go to Edinburgh, and she went and stayed with uh, George Thompson. All right. So she was uh, again. She she was quite a, a presence. You know, she wasn't a non-entity by any means. So the really. way that the, the perhaps the biographers had sidelined her, and as we said at the beginning, you know, they accepted the having top plowman, but not the wife. But in actuality, she was accepted by Burns's peers yes, she and was. the people who wrote about them, and, mm. and you know, wasn't just that when he passed away. Well, you know, you're now cut off. She was accepted. No, she was. She was accepted and carried on singing as well. She was still known for her singing voice. I think she was. She comes across as being very strong, very tolerant to a degree, as I say. Very kind, a really good sense of humour, I think she mm. must have had, you know. Um, and that struck me as well, and it's not often noted that I think one of the chief attractions of Burns was that he made people, he made women laugh. Mm -hmm. I think he must have been... Maybe he could never uh, make his mother-in-law laugh and that no. was like, they never got <laughs> <No>. on. <laughs> I mean, he could clearly charm the birds out of yes. the trees, but I think one of the reasons for that was, I think he must have made, you know, it's a very attractive quality, mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. a man that can make make women laugh. But um, also from what you're seeing in the picture that you're, you're building of Jean, you can also see why he was attracted to her. Yes, absolutely. You know, because it sounds yes. as though many people were yeah. attracted to her. Yes, yeah. I think, I exactly, she was, you know, and, and she she was, as I say, she was tolerant. One one of the things that um, really struck me, she, um, she uh, gave birth to a child and at the same time, Anne Park, the barmaid at the Globe, mm -hmm. gave birth to Burns's daughter. Mm -hmm round about the same time uh, and Anne Park had gone back to Leith to her parents um, and kept the little girl for a while and then uh, a year or so later um, decided that she didn't want to mm -hmm. look after this little girl anymore um, and Jean it was who went to Leith and brought but, uh -huh. this little girl back 
um, and apparently, um, by all accounts, said at first that she they would look after her, but she wasn't going to be brought up as one of mm. hers. And that lasted a very short space of time. <laughs> and within weeks, yeah. she was just... Um, and that, oddly enough, that was the only surviving daughter. Wow. And was very, very close to Jean, mm-hmm. stayed very close to Jean, you know, as, as Jean got older. You mentioned uh, that uh, Jean met Nancy McElroy. Was this on one of her trips to Edinburgh? Yes, I believe so, yes. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing much about it other than that they did meet and take tea together. That's so, interesting. Uh, and I suspect they would have got on because I think they were both women of quite strong character, you know. Um, I think I think afterwards, when all was said and done, uh, apparently Nancy did used to dine out on stories of the great poet and her, <laughs> her, her love for the great poet. The great love. Um, but I, di- I think probably they would have, they would have got on. Um, you mentioned that Jean stayed in Dumfries after his death, yeah. and I know you've written about Burns and his time in Dumfriesshire. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that time? Say a little bit about that time, you know, before he died, because he was. This is when he was working for the excise, is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he always knew that the farming was going to be a bit precarious. Yeah. So he was training um, at the time when he decided that, yes, he wanted to marry Jean um, after she'd, she'd actually given birth to a second set of twins who had died. Uh, and he, um, he trained for the excise because he knew he would need... Um, another income source Mm -hmm. so for a while he was farming and working for the excise and he was oh god he was riding 200 miles a week Mm -hmm. um which in winter is some undertaking yeah Dumfries and Galloway absolutely god um so he he was working probably too hard Ellis land was very beautiful but like all the farms that the landlords would the landowners would would rent out the farms to be improved. Yes. And the tenant farmer would it would struggle. Yeah. I mean, I've, having visited uh, Ellis Land, it's difficult to imagine much growing down there. It's yeah, pretty it's harsh. stony, harsh. I mean, it's a very beautiful place. Mm, yes. And he did some fabulous writing. I mean, he wrote Tamashanta, yeah. you know. Um, and I think Jean was actually rather, was happy there. Yeah. I think that was quite a happy time for Jean. Uh, and less so when they moved to Dumfries. Yeah. Initially, yeah. because they were in, they they were in a very small um, apartment in in, in Dumfries in the town, uh, at first mm-hmm. until they moved to the house that that she stayed in after his death, yeah, which so was much better. Whereabouts was the house that she stayed in? Because I was going to say um, the, the one the original one was was a small dwelling. It was small. It? it was one of those streets that runs down to the river. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's there. You can't you can't go into it, but yeah. it's still there. And apparently, it was I think it was three rooms. You know, yeah. two rooms with a little sort of cubbyhole in between. And given that by that they were quite a big family, it would have been a bit of a struggle. And it wasn't a nice street, apparently. Mm. And it flooded, yeah, you know, it yeah. flooded, the end of it flooded. Um, so I think it will have been a relief when she moved to the, the house that, that is the museum yes. now that, yeah. that she um, they stayed in, you know, and that was a much nicer house. Um, um, 
Because I think his time down the Fisher sometimes is a bit overlooked, you know, for it is. Ayrshire is the, yes. you know, yeah. claim. I mean, and he was writing and collecting songs at that yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, they were never in penury, but I think the problem for him was that his health was failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and consequently, he was worrying. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't really being paid for the songs, right? Um, and the excise work was a bit precarious mm-hmm. because if he had to cut down the hours, and consequently the money was mm-hmm. was being cut down, so they were potentially they they could have been in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and his health was was not good, so I don't think being in Dumfries helped. And they think, a a lot of people think now that what he was suffering from was endocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. Oh, okay. Okay. And apparently it can be um, chronic or acute. Mm -hmm. And he, possibly he was suffering from a chronic condition for a while, um, which became acute. And that was what killed him. The symptoms are Uh, right. I mean, there are other possibilities, but the symptoms are are right for that. And he had had serious toothache Mm -hmm. not long before he had that final illness. And that would have meant a massive infection, uh, which, because the heart's a muscle as well. Yes, of course. So what the doctors were calling the flying gout in those days, it, it would have been painful and... Weakness and all the symptoms that he had coincide with that. His illness was quite over a short period of time, or do you think you said he's he he was was failing and then it did become acute? And this was the point at which he was told to try sea bathing. So, you know, he went down to Browell to take the waters. It's like a poor man's spa. Right, okay. It's um, near the Solway. Yes, it's right. on the Solway coast near um near Rothwell. Right, yeah. And then he he was told to um well the, the water cure was it was supposed to be the cure for everything in those days. I mean that it was kill or cure. He, he said it he said it helped the pain, but I yeah, think that was, I it was clearly freezing. Just, yeah. And he couldn't eat. He he could uh, barely eat. Um yeah. So Jean was obviously having to nurse him at this period as well. Yeah, uh, yes, she, she, you know, she, and she was expecting a baby again. Mm. Um, and so she must have been extremely worried. And he he couldn't work. If he couldn't work for the exercise, there was a pension, but it was yeah small. Um, so she must have been incredibly worried, you know. And he was worried about her. Yeah, a lot sure. of his letters from that, time reflect because she was um she gave birth to his last child on the day of the funeral uh, so and the, some of those last letters that he wrote uh, asking for her mother to come to be with her uh, and the delay was that her mother was in Fife visiting relatives and of course in those days it was quite hard to get word mm-hmm, from of one course, place to yeah, another yeah. So it wasn't that her mother didn't want to come. Mm-hmm. It was that it was you know it was the word. Was, the yeah, time. the word was difficult to get. Um, so he spent time down on the Solway, um, attempting to 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 get a cure. But I think he knew it wasn't. It wasn't mm. going to happen. 
Um, and you spoke a little bit about what happened after he died and where Jean stayed, but, I mean, how did she support herself? How was... uh, the, they set up a fund, a subscription fund, the people of um, Dumfries and, and elsewhere, uh, sort of supporters of the poet. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. They all came scuttling out of the woodwork. I was going to say, could you not have done that before? He was yeah. <laughs> rending all over Galloway. Yeah, I mean, because th- there is a sort of... There's a really sad story that... Um, when he was not at all well, and uh, he was walking out in Dumfries, and people were ignoring him. And a friend remarked on it, and he said, oh, that's all by now. Really? So, so he, yeah, felt he felt that his time, his time was over. That's interesting. You know? um, because the, the gentry had kind of given up on him, you know. They moved on to the next. They moved on person. to the next, yeah, which is kind of sad. But once he was dead, it all changed. Yeah. And they all came. Well, I mean, I suppose it's yeah. still kind of similar yeah. now. But and they were, they were desperate for souvenirs, you know. And yeah. So a lot of the um, the papers went. People would come and ask for things. And, wow. And somebody apparently did try and walk off with his umbrella. <laughs> 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 and it was it was very like now yeah. you know that it, it, you know they wanted bits of them they wanted yeah and poor Jean was for a while left defending this um, I can't remember who it was but there was someone who passed away recently and the papers were full of um, a, you know people singing their praises and saying what a lovely man he was it was Graham Taylor the ex-England manager actually football manager and someone came on and said I wish he'd written all this stuff when he was still alive because he would have been so pleased. Exactly, yes. And you'd get the similar yeah. feeling. I think it was very much like that, yeah. you know. Um, and the the um, the first biographer took all the papers and actually never gave them back to the family. Um, and uh, Jean's granddaughter, so Jean's, Robert and Jean's son's daughter... She lived a long and very prosperous life. Um, Sarah, her name was. Mm-hmm. She finished. She only died in nineteen oh seven. Wow. Um, and she apparently, for her whole life, she was indignant about yeah the way in which a the way in which her her f- grandfather had been treated, his memory, you know, that the, that the, there'd been allegations that he was an alcoholic and so on, um, and she was indignant about that and also about the family papers not being given back to the family. And is that how did you feel about the way Jean had been sidelined? Do you think that was something that she also that may have been yes because yeah. she she had spent some time with Jean as a yeah. little girl. It's fascinating because I don't think um, we ever think of. We always think of Burns Star kind of in the ascendancy and always up yes. there. Don't ever think of it fading at fading. all. No, we don't. We don't. Yeah. You know, and for him, it it, it, it for his perception, it it did. Yeah. I think. Imagine something. I think he face. always valued his work, and yeah. and Jean certainly did. Yeah. Um, but I do think the way he was treated was was quite bad. Yeah, which no. which actually makes sense when you know how hard the life was for them at the end, mm. was for him at the end. Yeah, because it has was something that crossed my mind. Well, why wasn't there, you know, wealthy patrons who had been willing to mm. host them in Edinburgh, you know, helping to mm. support? They they would have. I mean, there's people would have um, certainly helped him out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think because he was so ill latterly, 
everything was looming very large. Yeah. So he's sending these letters saying that, you know, he's going to be, he's in debt, he needs to pay this. And, and there were people, there were people who owed him money who would willingly have paid it. Mm -hmm. There were people who would willingly have given money, but they didn't know. Right. You know, okay. and he was panicking. Mm -hmm. um, so and I if you say it's not as easy as just sending a post and no, getting it back the next day. you can't time. lift the phone and, yeah. you know, and say. So, so there was a delay in the fact that his last illness was so acute. Um, I, I think all that kind of conspired to, to make him, his last days were really quite sad. You know. So this idea of the cult of Burns, if you like, the, the imagery that, that, you know, went for so long, um, as you say, hard drinking, womanising, mm -hmm. all the things that, you know, going all the way through to, I suppose, mm -hmm. the mythologising of the Burns Supper and all of that thing. They started almost immediately after his I think death. they did, yes. Yes, I think they did. I mean, he he did. The, the drink is, is it's a bit contentious. I mean, there, there are people who say they never saw him the worst for drink. Mm -hmm. um, from his own letters, he was occasionally the worst for drink because he, you know, he's, he, he will write, you know, I cannot walk a straight line and things like that. <laughs> uh, but we have to remember, people did drink a huge amount in those days. Mm. Yeah, men, particularly. Yeah, yeah, men yeah, did, yeah. Uh, you know, it was commonplace for men. To drink all day, basically. To drink, yes, huge amounts yeah. of alcohol. And actually, by those standards, he probably drank less than, uh, yeah. than an awful lot of people. You know, I, I remember I seeing a menu from that time and every course was like what drink you would have with it. And we're talking breakfast yeah. and things like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Just keep yeah. topping up as they go. Yeah, they did. Um, so, uh, you know, I think occasionally would overdo it. I don't think it was a drunkard by any no. by any. No. Um, standards at all, uh, and I think latterly, the he couldn't hold alcohol be because of his health mm -hmm. problems. You know, it's, it, it affected him really badly. Uh, so I, I think that was not true. Um, and as I say, I think he was, apart from being unfaithful, I think he was actually quite a good husband. <laughs> except, <laughs> except, <laughs> except for that. But, but he I, was, well, he was gentle. Yeah. He was, you know, he was, and he was I, kind. I say, yeah. We know he was unfaithful, yeah. but the the Clarinda and Solander stuff is interesting again mm. because it does feel like something which he was doing almost as a po poetic endeavor or something that would maybe yes. fire. Yes. The poet in him yes. rather than... I think he always distinguished between the reality of the love he felt for Jean, which mm. was... He said himself it was not an attachment of romance. Mm -hmm. But we have to think about what romance meant yes, in those uh, days. Yeah, you know, we, we, it's not what we're thinking no. about now. Yeah. And he, he definitely, I think, in his own mind, distinguished between this, this woman that he was incredibly fond of and that he knew would be the right wife for him mm -hmm. and the the kind of airy fairy yeah stuff that that didn't really signify as yes there was the reality and then yeah, there was the there was the reality and there was the romance, the romance. and he needed the romance yeah yeah because that was selling yes yeah yeah, yeah. um can we talk a little bit about some of your other work? Because you, uh, which novel is? How many novels have you done now? 
Oh, I lose track. There must no, be about nine. Like, eight eight or nine. nine. I think it's about uh, nine, yeah. Yes. Um, and a lot of them are historical novels. Was that yes. something that you, right from the start, was something you wanted to do? I did. I, I did always want to write historical novels. I mean, I started out as a playwright, and a lot of the plays mm. I was doing were on historical themes. Um, but back when I... Um, maybe 20 years ago, you could not sell historical novels. That's fascinating. Love, no money. Yeah. Um, and it's only in the last 10, 12 years that mm, the circle has turned. And, and because people, they're big now. Yeah, I mean, people are big absolutely... Now, they are. I mean, you know, I remember a time when my then agent said, oh, no, nobody wants historical novels. Um, but it is different now. Uh, and so the first novel I did for Saraband um, was a book called The Physic Garden, and that was a historical novel uh, set in the very, very early 19th century in Glasgow. Okay, interesting. Um, I must read that. That's yes. fascinating. Um, could you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yes, it's set in more or less in the gardens of the old College of Glasgow University, so it's very roughly based on fact. Okay. Um but not as much based on fact as the duel, obviously. It's um, it's about a gardener um, and a, a professor of botany. Um, the gardener's called William Lang and the professor is Thomas Brown and they were real people. Mm-hmm. But we know very little about them. Uh, and I, I found an, a book... About, called The Lost Gardens of Glasgow University. And this oh, had wow. an account of these two people. Um, and William was a young gardener whose father died who was made head gardener of the... Oh, it's the old College of Glasgow University down on the high street. Down the high street, yeah, yeah. yeah um, and the physic garden was the medicinal garden. It was where they grew the samples, the wow. botanical, the herbs. Uh, and... Um, William's father died very suddenly and he was made head gardener at probably too young an age. Okay. Um, and the physic garden was dying. Oh. And the reason the physic garden was dying was early industrial pollution because yeah. there was a tight foundry next to it. Yeah, and the and heavy that area. Met, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the university needed type, they needed printing. So the, the, that had been allowed to go ahead but the physic garden was dying and they couldn't get specimens for the botanical lectures so the uh, professor of botany asked William to go and gather specimens for him and I thought at first I mean they were real historical people and I thought that they were I thought it was an older professor mentoring a younger man and then I looked at the dates and realised that they were really of ages and I realised it was a friendship and it was a friendship across classes Um, and it all it all turned sour or it all it ended and I could find out no more Um, we know a bit more about Thomas, but we know almost nothing about what happened to William. He he, he lost his job, um, and so I I made it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen um, that where the novelist steps yeah. in and says, "Right, we've, yes. we've done the history. Yes, I can do no more. I can find <laughs> no more. Right. I'm going to fill in the yes. gaps." Yes, and we, I filled yes. in the gaps. Uh, and it's really a story about friendship and betrayal. Mm-hmm. Is is what the Physic Garden is. It's about a story of of a friendship that is kind of against the odds. Um, and then something happens, and it is—it's a, a huge betrayal. 
Um, so how do you find these topics to write about? How do you find these people, I suppose, to write about? Is it just a, a curiosity that leads curiosity. you down? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a curiosity. I, I mean, with that story, I started off by wanting to write it as a play. And in fact, I did. I wrote sort of a, you know, a short one-act play mm-hmm. and then thought, no, there's an awful lot more to be told here and eventually wrote it. And that's a first-person story. It's it's William as an old man telling his story. Um, it's William looking back on his youth and trying to get some perspective on, on what happened oh, and telling his tale. Um, he had a really powerful voice for me. I couldn't... Because somebody said, how did you get inside the mind of this, you know, man mm-hmm. in his late 70s? Um and it was just this really powerful voice. I couldn't, I, I couldn't leave it alone. And the whole story just unfolded. So it was quite uncanny. Actually. Yeah, I was talking mm-hmm. to um, the writer Ian Maloney um, about his recent novel. Um, and he, he was saying that it was the first time, I think this was his third novel, I think, and for the first time, he had a character like that, yeah. where the voice he could hear the voice yes. and and put it down. He said it was Absolutely. quite uncanny. It is, you know, because it, it was, doesn't always no, happen. No, no, no. You no. know, that was a, kind of a first for me. Mm-hmm. That I thought, and this because I think at the time I was writing it um, before I even had a, a publisher or anything, and I think an agent at the time said it would be better in the third person, and I tried, but I couldn't do mm. it. And this this man had to tell his his story, you know. Um, so but, what, uh, obviously, the, the situation, the people come first because you find out about them. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you kind of decide that, yeah, I'm going to write about these people or, I mean, have you had people that you thought, yeah, this would make an interesting play or novel or even short story, and then you've gone, no, actually, I'm not interested in... Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> that happens quite often. <laughs> yes, you start, I, I think that's a, um, that signifies whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. Yours have more ideas than than... Have you ever got quite far down the line and realised... No, Sometimes, yes, yeah. I have occasionally. Um, you do. So, sometimes you'll start something and realise that it is maybe a short play or a short story. Um, sometimes you'll make a whole lot of notes on something and then think that you're going to write it as a novel and you don't because mm-hmm. it just kind of peters out. Yeah. Um, and if you really can't not write something, then that's... It, yeah, it, yeah, it's so going it, to work. Yeah, you know, it's going to work, um, because initially when I started out with the jewel, I thought I might write about um, Nancy as well, right. but I, I won't. Yeah, you know, that's not going to happen. Yeah, there's one chapter um, I think, isn't there? Yes, Nancy, you know, I, I, and she is woven into mm-hmm. that story, but she, I, I wouldn't want to write a whole novel about her. Um, so you, you do uh, quite often. You'll have a, a folder with notes that you think might turn out to be a novel, but it doesn't. Was the jewel always going to be a novel? Yes. 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 And that, and then the more I found out about that, the more, um, the more interesting it became. I have this I have this theory that there's never been a particularly successful attempt at a film of Robert. Jones. I agree with you. <laughs> and I think it's mostly because they try and focus on. Island Mary, or they try and focus on Nancy, and the actual story is that really dramatic tale of yeah. his his youth and 
his relationship with his father and then his marriage and what happened throughout his marriage. And they kind of ignore the main the main tale. The, main, the actual yeah. tale is right the in front of them. The actual tale is right in front of them. Yeah. You know? That's interesting. Um, it's something that I've discussed previously is why there hasn't been a Burns no. film. I mean, there was. There was one called Red Rose, which was not particularly successful. But, you know, there was talk of Hollywood doing it at one mm. point. I even spoke to some of the people who were supposed to be involved in it, but it's just never happened. And I think that's maybe true. Because mm. if you concentrate on Burns the myth, well, we know that. Yes, story. That's exactly. already been told. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it's the one, it's the thing you haven't noticed before, yes. perhaps, that's got the real yes, tale. Yes, it is. The real tale's there. Yeah. You know? And so interesting. Such an interesting character. Yeah. But he's he's kind of been subsumed in the myth, you yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. she's been yeah. relegated and, and overshone yes. by his myth as yes. well. Yes. Whereas what you're describing is someone that you can see as a three-dimensional character and someone yes. that really could be yeah. uh, on screen. Um, I wanted to ask you about A Quiet Afternoon in the Museum of Torture because <laughs> it's one of the best titles of anything I've ever read. <laughs> so this is one of your novels, isn't it? No, it's a story. It's a story, isn't it's it? It's a short story. Um, it's a short story set in somewhere in Italy. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Italy. No, These places... Well, I think they're actually right across Europe. They have museums of torture in various European towns and cities. And uh, we were visiting one. I can't remember what town. It may have been in Volterra. Right. Um, and we, we actually had a quiet afternoon in the Museum of Torture. But they're quite disturbing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're kind of... <laughs> They're sort of... So it's not like a Madame Tussauds, it's an actual... They are a bit like uh, Madame okay. Tussauds. Um, but they they have... I mean, some of it's made up, some of it's not. Uh, and they are grim. Mm. I mean, they are kind of black museums, you yeah. know. that You get them over here, like, you know, the police museum sometimes have that sort yeah. of thing, you know, murders, instruments of torture. Yeah. So they have a museum of torture. And as I said, I did spend a quiet afternoon in the museum of torture. Um, but it's about, the story is, it's about a young couple who have a new baby um, and they are in Italy. And it's a sort of a, a part of Italy where you are aware that they're... Um, that beneath the surface is volcanic activity going on and they're in a museum of... And it's a, essentially it's a story about that feeling that you get when you have a new baby that the world is suddenly a very, very threatening place. <laughs> so I was just talking to a new father last night who was explaining that. Yeah. I'm scared to breathe. Yes. <laughs> and that's what it's about. It's uh -huh. about that feeling, you know, that... <laughs> um, what uh, have you got something you're working on just now that you can tell us about yes um, well, I can say a bit about it not much um, Saraband are, are publishing um, a novel of mine called The Curiosity Cabinet which is a kind of um, it's a book I wrote some time ago right. uh, and I've revised it a little bit but that's really the the um, precursor to a, a brand new book that I'm working on for them called The Posy Ring. Right. Um, and it's very different. It, it, it will be set in the Western Isles, set on an island. Um, the Curiosity Cabinet is set on an island 
It's part historical, part contemporary. Right, okay. Uh, it's not, nobody goes back in time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, parallel tales. It's tales, parallel tales of past and present. Okay. And they ha- they they are almost in, intertwined, yes. Ah, that sounds interesting. Um, and was um, the Curiosity Cabinet, had that been already published? Or was it, a... it was published a long time right, ago, okay. but um, it's, I've revised it somewhat. And were the characters people you wanted to revisit? Yeah, except that the, the Posey Ring is not a sequel because it, okay. it doesn't really have a sequel. It's an offshoot, right. but it has a very similar setting and some, it, it's, it's almost like a springboard to the new novel. But I think there will be more than one. The Posey Ring, I can see it maybe being a trilogy. Interesting. Because yeah. um, I have things in it, it. It certainly has the potential to, to go on. Uh, and I can see that I would want to, but I have to get the, the first draft, yeah. the first novel finished to see quite yeah. where it's going. You know. And um, after the duel, have you kind of left Robert and Jean behind for, well, for just now at least, obviously? But... For the moment, yes, <laughs> probably. Um, although I have, I have some ideas of other things I might like to write, but uh, we'll see. Okay, I, think I need that... a little break from them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect place to finish. So, Catherine, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. And we'll be back um, next time with someone completely different. And that was Burnscast 2017. Um, I hope you found that as interesting um, to listen to as we did to record it. It was a great chat. Thank you very much to Catherine for giving up her time to talk to us. Um... Catherine uh, mentioned a song which Burns wrote for Jean, um, a song which sets out just how he did view her as his muse. Um, It's called Oh Were I on Parnassus Hill, and I thought the perfect place to finish would be to um, read it out. So this is Oh Were I on Parnassus Hill by Robert Burns. Oh Were I on Parnassus Hill or had or helicon my fill, that I might catch poetic skill to sing how dear I love thee. But Nithmon, be my muse as well, my muse, mon, be thy bonny cell. On Corsoncon, I'll glower and spell and write how dear I love thee. Then come, sweet muse, inspire my lay, for all thee lelang summer's day. I couldna sing, I couldna say, how much, how dear, I love thee. I see thee dancing o'er the green, thy waist say jimp, thy limbs say clean, thy tempting lips, thy roguishine, by heaven and earth, I love thee. By night, by day, I feel at hame, the thoughts of thee, my breast in flame, O oh, I, I muse, and sing thy name. I only live to love thee. Though I were doomed to wander on, beyond the sea, beyond the sun, till my last weary sand was run, till then and then I love thee. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with someone who, let's face it, has got quite a lot to live up to. See you then. Cheers. (laughs) 